we're continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah, which tells the story of God's people rebuilding the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, which, as we learned from the book of Revelation, is precisely what the church is called to do today. We are building a new Jerusalem, and so for the next couple months, we are turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to learn how we are to go about doing that. When the church is in disrepair, what should Christians be doing? In the midst of a society that that cares very little for the pursuit of holiness or the Word of God, what should be our posture? Last week, we were introduced to Nehemiah. uh, We saw that he was well acquainted with the Scriptures. He knew the promises of God, and he was able to apply those promises to his own situation. Nehemiah was passionate about the city of God, and that passion led him to action. He was heartbroken to hear that Jerusalem was in ruins, but before he took action, he spent several months praying and fasting and repenting before the Lord. And so last week, we talked about the absolute necessity of Scripture, prayer, and repentance. Any attempt to rebuild must be founded upon these things. There's one verse that I purposely did not cover last week, and that's chapter 1, verse 11. This is how Nehemiah concludes his prayer. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Having spent several months praying and fasting and repenting before the Lord, Nehemiah is now ready to take action, and we are told that he is cupbearer to the king. Now, cupbearer sounds pretty menial, right? But the office of the king's cupbearer was a, was a highly prestigious position within the empire. The cupbearer was responsible for ensuring that the king's wine and food were, were free of poison. And so, obviously, the king would have trusted Nehemiah completely. And that trust would have translated into power and influence. In other words, Nehemiah had the ear of the king. He was one of the king's counselors. And of course, this this was all the more impressive because Nehemiah was a Jew. He wasn't even Persian. And so that places Nehemiah in some elite company. Nehemiah is like Joseph, who served at the right hand of Pharaoh. Nehemiah is like Daniel, who served at the right hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nehemiah is like Mordecai, who served at the right hand of King Ahasuerus. Nehemiah is like Esther, who courageously appeals to the king on behalf of her people. In fact, the, the textual evidence within Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah suggest that Nehemiah's king and Esther's husband are the same person. More on that in a minute. This is what I want us to see in verse 11. Nehemiah enjoyed a place of privilege within the Persian Empire. And he had to grapple with the contrast between his own privilege and the great trouble and shame his people were facing. This is what the Bible teaches us to do with privilege. Our society teaches us to lay down our privilege, to relinquish our privilege out of solidarity with those who are less privileged. 
But the Bible teaches us to take up our privilege and to exercise whatever power and influence we have to advocate for justice and to build up the city of God. When God elevates a Christian man or woman to a place of power and influence, the Bible encourages that person to exercise their power and influence, to advocate for justice and to build up the city of God. Because Nehemiah used his privilege for the good of others, the people did not resent him for that privilege. The people praised God for Nehemiah's privilege. And the same is true today. When privileged people use their privilege to serve their own interests, the rest of society is going to resent them for that. But when privileged people use their privilege to serve the interests of others pursuing justice and equity and and building up what is broken down, the rest of society is going to thank God for them. So how, how is God asking you to serve? How is he asking you to use whatever power and influence you have? What injustice or inequity can you help to remedy? What broken thing can you help to rebuild? Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah is afraid because, quite simply, his boss is a dictator. And requesting a leave of absence to go build a wall around a city within the Persian Empire could easily have been interpreted as disloyalty to the king. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, um, either this was a split-second prayer or Nehemiah took some time before making his request. I I actually think this is probably a split-second prayer. But either way, it, it speaks to the depth of Nehemiah's spiritual life. Time after time, his knee jerk reaction is to pray. Prayer is his first resort. Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? Okay, why would Nehemiah bother to tell us that the queen was sitting beside the king? What does that parenthetical statement contribute to the story Nehemiah is telling? I would say very little unless the queen to which he refers is Queen Esther. And again, the the chronological information in Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther suggests that Nehemiah's king and Esther's husband are the same person. In the book of Nehemiah, he's referred to as King Artaxerxes, And in the book of Esther, he is referred to as King Ahasuerus. But that's not as strange as you might think. 
Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus were not the names given to these men at birth. These are throne names. Artaxerxes means kingdom of justice. Ahasuerus means greatest of kings. And so these were throne names referring to, I think, the same person. And this would mean that Nehemiah is serving in the same royal court as Mordecai and Esther. The Persian emperor was surrounded by Jewish counselors who were using their privilege to build up the city of God. Back to verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And not only does the king permit Nehemiah a a leave of absence, the king subsidizes the entire project. He pays for it. Verse 9. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it pleased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So as as Nehemiah draws near to Jerusalem, he immediately faces opposition. Opposition from the other governors in the region. These these men are the villains of the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to hear their names throughout. They evidently view Nehemiah as a threat to their own prominence in the region. But we know Nehemiah actually expected this opposition. And so Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, but he doesn't tell anyone why he's there. And he sneaks out at night for a reconnaissance mission. He performs an inspection of the city walls. In the words of Jesus, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's counting the cost and he's formulating a plan back when he petitioned the king for help at the beginning of chapter 2. Nehemiah had every detail mapped out. He knew how long the project would take. He knew the dangers he would face. He knew the level of protection he would need. He knew he would need a letter from the king. And he knew what materials he needed and where to find them. Nehemiah is both a prayer and a planner. You see, just because we're doing what God wants us to do doesn't mean we can afford to do it without first counting the cost and formulating a plan. Being led by the Spirit does not mean flying by the seat of your pants. Verse 17, Nehemiah says to the leaders in Jerusalem, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah wants to rebuild Jerusalem so that the people of Israel may no longer suffer derision. The world was laughing at the people of Israel. They claimed to worship the one true God. They claimed to be his priestly people. They claimed to enjoy his presence in their midst. But if they're so great, why is their city in ruins? So for all of his 
his competence and his confidence, Nehemiah looked like a fool. But as we saw last week, his, his foolishness, and our foolishness as well, is rooted in the promises of God. Promises for him, such as, the Lord of hosts will once again reign on Mount Zion. The Lord of hosts will rescue Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be inhabited and God will raise up the ruins. The land that was desolate will become like the Garden of Eden. There shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing. See, Nehemiah was steeped in promises like that. Okay, but why is it so important that they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? This is really fundamental to understanding the meaning of Nehemiah. Um, Obviously, the walls protected Jerusalem from attack, but the walls represented more than just a physical barrier around the city. In rebuilding the walls, the people of Israel are renewing their covenant with God. How? Well, they're, they're recommitting themselves to be separate and distinct from the world around them. The walls are a symbol of their holiness. And that, that helps us to understand what's going on in Revelation 21, which we read a few weeks ago. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the, 12, and, and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. According to Revelation, the city of God which descends out of heaven, combines the twelve tribes with the twelve apostles, which form the twelve gates and the twelve foundations of an enormous wall. Meaning, the mission of the church is organically connected to the mission of Nehemiah and all of God's people before and after him. Christians are not building from scratch. Everything we build today is ultimately the continuation of an ancient project. Nehemiah built literal walls, and we are building metaphorical walls. But whether literal or metaphorical, we are building up the same city of God. So perhaps, like Nehemiah, it would be good for us to do some reconnaissance. Perhaps we should look around and consider the state of things. If rebuilding the walls represents a recommitment to holiness and obedience to God, where do our walls need rebuilding? To what degree have we learned from the world rather than from Scripture what a healthy marriage looks like? And, and what does that mean for dating and courtship? Have we submitted our politics to the Word of God? Are we placing too much hope and trust in human authorities? Are we faithfully tending to the body of Christ? Are we building her up? Are there relationships in this room right now that need to be repaired? 
Have we allowed our middle-class anxieties to crowd out a genuine and active compassion for the poor and fatherless? How about issues of anger or lust or overindulgence? According to Proverbs 25, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So if we have no self-control, we are like the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah 1 and 2. We are broken and we are highly vulnerable to attack. So in, in what ways do we need to regain control over ourselves? Do we need to reconsider our entertainment choices? Have we been withholding the full tithe? Do we need to recommit ourselves to sexual purity? Are we eating too much or drinking too much? Are we neglecting the Sabbath? Do we too easily justify being absent from corporate worship? Listen, I, my goal is not to heap guilt upon us. I am guilty of many of these things. It's okay to struggle. We should expect to struggle, but we shouldn't be content with broken down walls. We should not be content with broken down walls. We should always be rebuilding. We should always be seeking to bring our lives into greater conformity with the word of God. That's what it means to live a life of repentance. It means we are not content when the walls are broken. And so come, let us rise up and build the wall. Let's learn from Nehemiah, how to be the church. Let's count the cost. Let's expect opposition. Let's use our privilege to serve. And let's strengthen our hands for the good work. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling and commissioning us to this work. We recommit ourselves to the covenant and we desire to be your holy and distinct people among the nations. Jesus, come, um, come and inspect your holy city. As we read in John 2, cast out, cast out whatever does not bring you glory. Purify us. Turn over some tables if you have to. Holy Spirit, strengthen our hands for the work. Empower us to rise up and build with wisdom and discernment and hope and faith and love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.